Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Remotely Effective. I'm your host, Thomas Lattimore, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Steve Akers. And in this episode, Steve and I discuss his early career as a software developer. We touch on his growth into management from that point and uh, his experience growing with a large distributed team at Living Social. Uh, We get into what some tips are for success with distributed teams, pros and cons of hybrid office scenarios, and we hear about Steve's personal workflow for his time and task management. And with that, let's get started. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you have worked in a variety of different work environments, both distributed teams and and working remotely, and also worked in different types of roles uh, across uh, your career, both on the engineering side and then also the management side. And I really look forward to diving in and hearing your perspective on a lot of those things. But before we we get too far in, can you just give the listeners kind of an overview of how you you got into the industry, where you started out, and uh, how you you sort of segued into management and uh, what kind of role you're in today? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, my uh, my undergraduate degree is in mechanical engineering, and I worked as a mechanical engineer for like a hot minute. Um, and I remember I was so excited to get my first job, but then lost it really quickly uh, because the owner of the company was arrested for fraud. <laughs> and it was at that point as a new, you know, newly married man, um, just fresh out of college that I, I decided to take a minute and just see, you know, kind of what I wanted to do with my life. You know, did I really want to go down the engineering path? I was working for Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, as a typist in the legal department, and decided um, you know that I wanted to to do something different than engineering, convinced the subrogation department there at Blue Cross that they should hire me to do their software development, and um, the rest is history, uh, as they say, and that's kind of how I got into software engineering. So I I, I want to hear what was that. Pitch life, something something I think doesn't get talked about a lot of times. In, in when I say the industry, I mean you know you know tech, software development. I'm using that that as a very uh, broad umbrella. Um, is how do we you know m- move to different positions within our own teams, and how do we you know I hate to use the term move up, but sometimes it is a move up. What was it like when you? pitched this idea to whether it was your direct uh, direct manager, was it someone else in the company? What did you uh, sort of present to them in, in that? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I was ty- a typist. You know, I had my bachelor's in mechanical engineering, but I was typing for the legal department. And right, ne- you know, it was a big cube farm. And right next to the legal department, there was the subrogation department, which kind of makes sense. Um, and I, I could hear the manager of the subgration department talking about, uh, you know, their, her frustration with the, the developers, the developers that were building this big, uh, system for them to manage these subrogation cases. And, um, you know, at the time I was thinking about becoming a doctor as well. And so I was doing, I wanted to go to school and get my pre-med. So I needed something where I could get full-time benefits but still have some flexibility to go to school. Uh, and at, at, um, 
Blue Cross that if you work 30 hours a week, you got full benefits. So I thought, if I can convince her to hire me, then that, that's problem solved, right? And, and I know she has a problem because I hear her complain about it. So I went to her and I said, you know, I'm really good with computers. I have a degree in engineering. I, I know that you're frustrated with the, uh, the programmers here at Blue Cross. What you need is someone on your team who is only focused on uh, delivering the, the functionality and fixing the, the bugs that, that your team uh, needs to get their jobs done. And she said, well, do you have any experience using um, Superbase, which you've probably never heard of? <laughs> it was very big in, in Europe once upon a time. It's kind of like a visual basic front end with, with a, okay. database, uh, a relational database back end. And I said, no, but I can learn it fast. And she said, I tell you what, um, learn it, try something out, maybe create a report or something and then get back to me. And I, and I thought, you know, creating a report won't be big enough. I need to figure out how to solve her problem. And I think that, by the way, as an aside, that is the key to getting ahead in anything that you want to get ahead in is find, find where there are problems and solve them. Find where there are people doing things that you would like to be doing and and, and pitch in to solve some of their problem. Um, that's kind of how you get your foot in the door. So anyway, I interviewed everyone on our team, said, what's the biggest problem you face? They all said, hey, it takes 15, 20, sometimes 30 minutes to load a case. I come in in the morning, I, I hit load, and then I go get coffee, and I chit-chat, and I do all these things because it takes forever, and my productivity tanks. Um, so I dug into that problem, and I got load time down to um, like 30 seconds or less. And when I showed it to her, her jaw literally dropped and said, you're hired right on the spot. I understand you weren't coming from at this from like, a, you, you, you're obviously technical, you have an engineering background, so you weren't coming in this really fresh, but what was the, what was the timeline on that? It was really a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, to be honest, you know, probably the first week I spent uh, getting up to speed on on Superbase itself. The second week, I spent interviewing and and digging into the problem. Wow, wow! And I definitely uh, like what you said about looking for problems to solve. I what what I tell people whenever they come to me and ask about wanting to get into software development of any kind, or when I hear people say, "Oh, I'm I'm I'd like to make some money on the side. Maybe I'll learn how to write an app." What I like to tell people is the harder thing isn't actually learning how to write code, though that is difficult. I don't want to uh, diminish you know, that, that fact. It, it does have its difficulties for sure and takes a long time to get really good at. But to get real longevity in the career, you have to look for problems to solve. And uh, to all the developers out there, myself, I'm, you know, work in software development, it's easy to get distracted and, and um, want to chase the the latest shiny tech that's out there, and whether it's a new language or a new framework. And at the end of the day, it's not just about that. And I would say that those are the minor points in the work that we do. The, the major points is, are we actually making something that is valuable enough for someone else to pay for? Whether that's our employer paying for our time, or working on a product ourselves that a customer or user will want to pay for. So definitely uh, a, really cool that you were able to learn that uh, so early in your career. So how long did you work doing uh, software development and what was that uh, trajectory like, Steve? 
Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't there for very long. Uh, I, I did finish my pre-med, um, and, but decided not to go to medical school. And I got a call from a local business who was oddly enough putting their whole manufacturing process, uh, into this super base, um, software package. And they called me and said, Hey, you're like the only person in Louisville that knows this. Do you, would you like to come work for us? Uh, so I did. I worked there a few years, started to get my master's degree because I knew early on that I was more interested in figuring out what to build and maybe how to build it than actually doing the building itself. Mm. So decided to kind of go down that management path early on and thought an MBA would help. And that's where I met a, a bunch of folks from GE who convinced me to, to apply for a job there. Spent about seven years at GE, both uh, half my time on the engineering side and half my time on product management side. Um, and then from there, I, I went and worked at, a, I, I've, I've worked at a lot of different places. So when I try to think through my career path, I have to like, wait a minute, where did I go next? Um, I went to a place here in Louisville called uh, Genscape. I was a VP of engineering there for about five years. Got some great experience. I joined that company when there was like maybe 60 people and left when there was probably three or 400. Um, from there, I got a call from an old friend of mine who I met at GE named Chad Fowler. Uh, he's the author of The Passionate Programmer. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I highly recommend yes. it. Highly recommend it. Um, and by the way, he got his start uh, with. Dave Thomas and, and the, the authors of Pragmatic Programmer, helping them solve some problems that they had. You know, that's kind of how he got his foot in the door with them, too. Um, he called me. He was a senior VP of engineering at Living Social and said, hey, you should come work here. And, and that was an amazing experience. You know, it was one of the first unicorns. And um, I joined, I guess, fairly early on and, and saw quite a bit of that meteoric rise and then you know kind of descent of that company uh and that was a fully remote the first time fully remote um position for me and and again i worked part of my time there for about five years part of my time in product management and part in engineering so that's definitely an interesting uh I, you know career trajectory story arc uh so it sounds like most of your transition i'll say the transition period from working as someone doing the actual writing of code to doing more and more on the management and a product side of things happened during your time at GE. What was it like uh, as you went through the transition, as uh, Paul Graham describes it, from a maker schedule to a manager schedule? Which, we're, for anyone not familiar with that, I'll I'll link that in the show notes. Um, Paul Graham has this very interesting I- idea that he has written up into. I don't know. It's almost like an essay uh, where he talks about how there's people that make things um, in the context of our conversation today. That's that's software developers. They they spend chunks of time, large chunks of time throughout their day, writing code and actually thinking through the really fine fine details of problems and how to solve those. And then there's the manager schedule where things are largely, not exclusively, but largely blocked up into times of discussion and or meetings. So what was it like for you when you began to make that transition? And did you find it tough? Or was the team that you were in uh, really supportive of, of that, that, that transitionary period? 
Well, it wasn't that difficult for me. And part of the reason uh, why is um, I, I sort of transitioned from engineering into product, product management around the time that I was transitioning into a more formal management role. Uh, so I was outside of you know teams of engineers kind of early on. Uh, and, and again, I, I'd already been moving towards a path of management and thinking along those lines to begin with. Um, and so, uh, especially at first, I really embraced the manager schedule. I kind of saw myself as having the role on the team of helping the, uh, the, the folks who were makers do the making. Uh, and since I had been there, uh, and done that and was familiar with what it was like to make things, I felt like it made me a better manager, uh, or, and, and, and more equipped for, for helping mm -hmm. those teams be more efficient. But I tell you, as you, Climb the ladder of management, that manager's schedule. And, and that's a, a great essay um, because it, it's exactly spot on in terms of the differences. That, you know, one hour blocks, trying to fill in all the op open spaces. As you climb the ladder, it gets more and more intense. And so, what I have found that helps me is being very deliberate in how I manage my schedule. One of the things that I learned from a recent um, boss of mine was that, that I own my time right? I own my schedule. And a lot of times we want to let people tell us how we're going to use our time. It should work the other way around. And so I started thinking about as I'm planning my week, how do I want to use my week? And so I do things like, um, you know, block out. It's almost the opposite of office hours. You know, in that, in that essay that you mentioned, Paul Graham talks about uh, having half manager schedule and a half uh, maker's schedule. And the way he does that is by having open office hours. Well, I kind of do the opposite of that where I say, you can't talk to me for the second half of the day on Friday. Because that's when I'm, you know, finishing up some projects that I started in the week and couldn't finish. That's when I'm planning the week ahead. That's when I'm thinking about the problems that I'm starting to see arise, etc. Um, I've also seen people do things like, hey, I'm going to do all one-on-ones are, are going to happen on Tuesday and Thursday and nothing else but one-on-one. So they kind of divide up their days into sort of themes, if you will, um, to try to compartmentalize the work to free up some time for them to do other things. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's definitely a good per perspective to hear. It interest, it's interesting that you, you find yourself needing uh, to to um, do that inverse of the office hours thing, where you're you're actually blocking off time to not do, let's say, office things, even though many times we're talking about remote stuff. Obviously, um, uh, how uh, do you uh, approach that from a communicating that to the the rest of your team? Do you uh, block that off? Actually, on your calendar, or is that something you just communicate to people who would normally, let's say, request your time, whether it's uh, your your managers or the people that are requesting your time that report to you? How do you how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so when I first kind of came to the realization that I needed to more, be more deliberate with my schedule, I uh, sent out an email uh, to my my direct reports and to their direct reports. And, and had, a, had a sample copy of a week and, and how I like to block things off and why I was doing what I was doing with some context and background 
um, and some related, you know, links for them to go read about other people who, who talk about this type of thing, just so they knew what I was doing and why I was doing it. Uh, I do also block it on my calendar. So the second half of the day on Friday literally is blocked. No one can, I mean, they can schedule over top of it perhaps, but, um, I think I've had pretty good luck with people respecting that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and by the way, I think it's, it's really important as you start to mentor people who are makers that start to show signs of aptitude towards uh, becoming managers to really help them understand what this transition is going to look like. And, because it, it, it is abrupt sometimes for folks and they don't know how to make the transition. So I, I try to work with folks um, who are high potential employees that I think would make good leaders within the organization you know, when they get that first tech lead job, for example, start talking a little bit more to them about uh, managing their schedule and their time. Uh, because you, the, the worst thing that could happen to flow is, is a whole bunch of meetings. Uh, and they got to be prepared for that. Yes. And that's, that, uh, it's interesting you say that because that's v very similar to the scenario that I'm currently in where uh, I'm a technical lead on the project I work on. and. I have a lot more meetings than I used to. And it has definitely been an adjustment, not just on the, the schedule front, uh, uh, you know, on this makers versus manager schedule, but also it's been a real challenge for myself mentally about what I feel is actual progress because mm -hmm. I'm so used to years of most of my progress is in some form of uh, either a technical document, meaning writing up a, a design document for or it's technical specification for something that is going to be written like real, you know, tangible output or actually in lines of code. And it's it's been a challenge for me personally to have to shift my mind to to look back at my schedule when some days I don't feel like I got a lot done. I did actually get a lot done throughout various conversations, whether it's in Slack or actual meetings. Have you experienced uh, uh, that yourself or seen that with any of the people that you've mentored in the organizations that you've worked with? And, and how have you uh, chosen to either guide people in working through that or work through that yourself? Yeah, so um, 100% have experienced that. I mean, to this day, I, I could work nonstop, uh, you know, from, from morning to night and, and, and walk away from it feeling like sometimes that I haven't accomplished anything because there's nothing concrete to point to. Had a whole bunch of conversations, might even be hoarse from talking so much uh, and go, what did I actually do today? Whereas, you know, when I wrote code, I could say, look at the code that I deleted and, and the code that I submitted and what we pushed to production and, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, and, and also at APRIS, which is where I currently work, when we introduced the concept of tech lead, this was a big problem for, for the folks who stepped up and said, you know, we, we want to take on that role because they were the high performance. They, were, they had high output. And now all of a sudden they weren't outputting or, or the way they measured their progress kind of didn't work anymore mm -hmm. because they had less time to do the things that they were measuring. And so we just, you know, we had to have a lot of conversations about that aspect of it. Talk to them about, you know, managing their schedules and owning their time. And, hey, look, just because someone said they want to talk to you about something doesn't mean 
that they get to talk to you right then and there about something, right? So uh, learn how to signal when you're available and when you're not and be deliberate about it. For, for those folks that are in an office setting, you know, we came up with something cultural that, that said, hey, look, if I, if I pull out this, we have these, I don't know what to call them, shelving units, wardrobes. I don't, I don't know. They, they sit next to, to the cubes and they have a, a pullout, vertical pullout drawer that you can kind of hang a winter coat in or something like that. And we said, hey, look, anybody that's pulled out that, that drawer by their desk, that means don't talk to them. And, and so if you walk by and you want to ask them a question and they've got that open, just keep walking. Um, and, and, and come up with some cultural norms like that, honoring the do not disturb in teams or Slack or or that kind of thing. And, and that really helps. Yes. I I've heard of similar, uh, or or similar things being done in organizations like, uh, and I think that, that the idea that you just presented is better than what I'm about to say. But another one is if someone has their headphones on, basically, you know, consider that they're focused in on what they're doing and and try not to interrupt them if if possible um but it's definitely important in an office setting to uh create expectations like that because it's a lot easier to interrupt people than it is even though slack and and chat systems like it have their own disadvantages when it comes to distraction levels um they're definitely are are things that you have to work through like in various office environments in the past uh we've had to work through uh, we meaning the teams that I was on uh, creating a culture of people not having the expectation of being able to walk in the office and all the developers turn and answer their their question whenever you know you'd have salespeople and um, you know, people from upper management. Sometimes it was or- urgent, and you know, if urgent things come come up, obviously they they need to be addressed. But most of the time, it's not. It's just important stuff that needs to be slotted in at a specific time. Um, one thing I also want to ask you about uh, the schedule side of things: How do you prioritize what? needs to get done during that Friday afternoon time that you have blocked off. Do you have a system in place like a to-do list or ongoing uh, a document of some type where you track that information? How do you uh, log that away during the week for what you're going to work on that Friday afternoon for that time you have blocked off? Yeah, this took me a while to really come up with a system that works. And to be honest, I have to stay on top of it for it to work. Um, because it's easy to get out of the habit of it. But what I started doing is following the getting things done uh, philosophy. I found this uh, ebook on Amazon for how to, how to do getting things done with things, things three in particular, which is a Mac app, um, and started following that uh, really the way it was laid out in the book. And what that allowed me to do is, so if, if I get an email that requires something other than an immediate response from me, I can, with a, with a, a shortcut, just immediately create a to-do list that has a link directly to that email. It will put it in the appropriate category and tags, uh, tags it, and then I can archive that email. So it keeps my inbox from getting cluttered. I, I try to stay at inbox zero every week if I can. Wow, I, that, that's impressive. Yeah. And inbox I, zero. It is, it, and it feels so good when you get there, and it and it and it disappears so fast. Um, 
But similarly, when I'm taking notes in a meeting and, and it, it comes up that some action needs to be taken about some topic, I can do the same thing, create a to-do that has a link directly to that note. Uh, sometimes I, I use Bear as my note-taking app. Uh, it uses Markdown, and, and I, I will, uh, you know, double colon in, in the front and back of a, of a string of text will highlight it. And I will highlight things that are important. And one of the things that I do on Friday is I do my week in review. I look at all the notes that I created that week and see anything that I highlighted and make sure there's an associated to-do list along with that. Um, so it's those kinds of strategies that, that, that help me stay on top of the word that needs to get done. And then so when Friday comes along, I take a look at my to-do list and, and start prioritizing and kind of scheduling out when I'm going to do certain things. Nice. Yeah. Sounds like you've really got a good workflow there. I, I myself also use Things 3 um, and then also a big fan of Bear as well. I use Bear for uh, like a scratch pad type documents and then use Google Docs for anything that needs to be shared with the or potentially shared with the rest of my team and all that. And definitely agree that Things is a great has great workflows, both in integration with other applications, the email forwarding service that it provides, and then also the hotkeys on Mac make it really, really good to capture uh, actions that need to be taken. I think a lot of my team is probably used to me seeing, uh, like I, I share my screen quite a bit doing pair programming sessions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And uh, they're, they're pretty used to seeing me now, like something come up, while we're on the call and I'm sharing my screen, just like hit the hotkey, you know, the, the dialogue pops up to enter the to-do and it, it goes to the inbox. But even at that, I, I still don't stay at inbox zero, unfortunately. So I definitely commend you for, for being able to achieve that um, for sure. Given your experience working in managing teams that are both remote and uh, in a centrally located office, and, and it sounds like now that somewhat at um, uh, Apris, uh, you have sort of a hybrid situation where some people are working from home potentially, and then there's also an office. What would you say makes a su- successful team member in a distributed environment over an office? What type of skills do people need to build? when working from home that they maybe would never need to if they worked the entire time in a office around their peers? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm actually going to flip it a little bit if, if you uh, will indulge me. Here. Absolutely. Yeah, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that the very first step in being um, successful or productive as a, a distributed team member is working for a company that has decided quite intentionally and, and deliberately that it's going to foster a culture that embraces distributed teams. Now, I know that's not always within you know, a, a person's powers to, to, to be at a place like that. But if at all possible, when you're looking for employment and you're in the interview process, ask questions about the intentionality of a distributed team culture. Because um, nothing will kill sort of the the idea of distributed teams quicker than a company that just gives it lip service and lip service you know comes in the form of yeah we we do hire remote but we don't 
do things from a remote first perspective. You remember when mm-hmm. mobile development was really taking off and, and, and product management teams would often talk about mobile first, right? Design the app for mobile first, and then we'll expand it to the desktop. Well, in, in, in a work environment setting, I like to think remote first. Like, how would I do this thing? How would I communicate this thing? If I were doing it 100% distributed versus uh, first, and then we'll, we'll talk about whether or not that also works for the people that are in headquarters. And I learned this lesson uh, by, by having the, the fortune of being on a, on a team at a company that, that really doubled down on this concept. Working at Living Social, they rose to 6,000 employees faster than, than, than I ever really imagined possible. And in order to do that, they had to hire the best people no matter where they live. And by doing that, you're now all of a sudden building this hugely distributed team. I had a team um, at Living Social that was spread in multiple continents, certainly multiple time zones. Uh, We were all over the place. We had to be good at being distributed in order to make that work. And and I want to say all of this because, um, you know, it, it... you might fall into the trap of thinking, well, maybe I'm not good at working remotely because this experience isn't working out for me. But in reality, it's that you're working at a place that doesn't really support that experience in the first place. Um, so just a couple of thoughts around what it looks like to, to, for a company to be intentional about distributed teams. First of all, they're going to invest in the strategy. They're going to have all the tools that everybody needs to communicate and collaborate in this type of an environment, they're going to walk the walk. Um, I had a, a boss at Living Social um, who, who would do all hands meetings from his home office. Uh, and, and he had, I think, every Star Wars Pop Funko figure that they ever made behind his desk. And so, <laughs> you know, you always saw that every time we had an all hands meeting. It was fantastic. He really lived it, right? So he wanted to know what it was like to be remote in those scenarios. So he said, I'm just going to be remote for every one of these meetings. Um, An intentional company is going to strive to have some sort of critical mass of distributed employees. So, you know, if there's one or two people in the whole company that's working somewhere else, then, then, then you're like the outlier. But if there is some sort of critical mass, then it really raises the level of of urgency in terms of how do we make a productive environment for these people. Um, you'll, you'll see remote managers. If a company doesn't have remote managers, that might be a red flag that in order to, to rise, you mm. know, in, in the ladder, uh, your career path that you might have to be in the headquarters. And that's not necessarily a good situation to be in. Um, they will have a communication strategy. That takes in consideration, you know, the different types of communication, whether it's synchronous, asynchronous, persistent, ephemeral, uh, et cetera. And they'll know when to use uh, each one of those types of communications. Um, the managers will treat one-on-ones as something that's absolutely imperative and not an optional thing. Because in a distributed environment, one-on-ones is really the way that you stay in touch with people. You make those connections. You find out how you can help remove obstacles. Uh, Etc. Um, and there will be they will be clear in communicating what it what career paths are available at the company and how you go from software engineer one to software engineer two to architect to manager to whatever. Um, because 
in a distributed environment, you're now starting to judge people more by the work that they produce and less by the perception of work, um, if that makes any sense. Since, since you're not in an office with people and you don't see them um, looking busy, for example, oh yeah, you know, uh, John's a really great guy. He's always the first one here and the last one to leave, but is he doing anything, right? Yeah. In a distributed environment, you have to look more at the output because you don't know when they start working. You don't know, you know, you can't see them. You don't interact with them physically. So yeah. once you find that, once you find that and you feel like this is a company that really embraces the idea, then I would say um, double down on communicating, communicating with your peers, communicating with your manager, communicating with your stakeholders, your internal customers. Uh, find ways to help. We've talked about that before. Find ways to connect with other people um, and, and just do good work. I think if you find an environment like that, if you're doing good work, you're going to thrive. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a really good overview of what it takes to be a a remote first company. I I, I that's that was great. That's great, and I I love that you use that remote first phrase. That's something I like to emphasize here on the show because there's a difference between allowing remote work, which a lot of companies do. And a lot of companies say that they do, and it turns out that the remote work that they allowed is they allow is very segmented, or maybe it's like one department in the company that doesn't need to communicate with the rest of the company that much. Uh, there's a difference between that and a scenario where a company actually says we're going to cater and make this uh, a priority. Um, there's lots of conversation right now, and I see different articles getting published on tech sites about whether or not any of these large Silicon Valley-based tech companies are going to keep employees or let employees work from home uh, after people start going back to large offices, you know, those that are working from home as a result of um, the pandemic right now. Uh, There've been a lot of people speculating, and a lot of people saying, "Oh, I, I, you know, remote work is here. Uh, all these large tech companies are now embracing it." And in in my opinion, it won't change in the long in well, in the the near future, it's not going to change. So in the coming years, I picture all these or the majority of these people are going to be still back in their offices, and they're going to be at their same desks because. Those companies' cultures did not change because their employees were for, forced to work from home. Yes, they're working from home, but that was like the culture doesn't just change overnight because of that. Do you have any thoughts on on that and uh, just the overall landscape of these large organizations that are being forced to work from home and, and whether or not any of them will continue it with uh, success in the near future? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think. Um, culture does not change overnight. That's why I keep talking about intentionality and being deliberate, you know, like deciding that you're going to be good at this and then figuring out how to get there. Uh, a lot of companies they're going to that, you know, that are forced to work from home now because of, of the pandemic, they're going to see troubles getting to that point as a, uh, see, look, it doesn't work, Right. Um, connectivity was bad. The call kept dropping, whatever it is, because they probably weren't ready 
from an infrastructure perspective to support it. Um, if that's the case, yeah, they'll, they'll go back to the office setting fast and they won't look back. I do think, though, that it will be eye-opening for some that they'll go, wow, I didn't know what it was like to have to do this from home. I now see what the struggles are. And when we do come back to the office and start talking about do we want to be more remote friendly, then, then they'll have a, uh, a level of, of experience with the situation to maybe make some better decisions. Yeah, and that will be that will be good for those people in those organizations for sure that that maybe the people making the decisions get to work from home or increase flexibility in who they can hire that maybe doesn't consider a relocation or at least doesn't want to relocate to, you know, high cost of living areas like uh, the Bay Area and stuff like that which a lot of these organizations are are many times based in not exclusively but many times, you know. Mhm. Um so yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out. I think in the long run, it will definitely see some changes, but I don't think it's gonna be in the six month or year time frame. No, like a lot of people are are predicting. I mean, and another thing, um, in addition to the the actual uh, logistics of getting the work done, is from an outside perspective. Well, not just outside, from people that I've known that have worked at a lot of these organizations. Um, they invest so much money into their offices, whether it's through snack bars and gyms and uh, catering and arcades and all that stereotypical stuff. Because, well, I won't say that their motivation is, is this, but it results in people working longer hours. Like there's, there's one situation I heard about from someone who worked at a large tech organization one you know one of the large tech companies where uh, they would order a catered meal for anyone that was at the office after six thirty at night. What does that emphasize? Uh, uh, um, encourage people to do it. Encourages people to stay at the office longer. And when you allow people to work from home, there is work life balance that you have to do, but there's not the same physical pressures in place of. Uh, all those office amenities to actually encourage people to stay online longer. So that's that's another aspect I've thought about as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, the the living social offices were really stocked with everything you could possibly want. A good friend of mine works for Facebook in D.C. And the last time I was in D.C., I went to go visit him. And it's the same. They have restaurants in their office that that... that that are like five-star restaurants. Um, yeah. And it's the same thing. D- breakfast, lunch, and dinner is free for everyone. And it encouraged them to, st- to get there early and to yep. stay late. Yep. And I, I think that that type of incentive system is not going to translate to people working at home as much. And I'm not saying that you can't be productive working from home. Obviously, I'm, I'm a big advocate for it, but they're going to have to put different incentive systems in place to actually get encourage people to get their work done or uh, put different uh, measurements in place for what actually is a, is a successful contributor to the team beyond just long hours at the desk and stuff. So yeah, it's well, definitely going to be interesting. interesting. Yeah. What's interesting about that though is I would contend that when you're in the office, your productivity actually goes down because of your proximity. 
you know, you, you run into somebody, Hey, how's it going? How was your weekend? What did, you know, what did you, what did you do? Have you seen this movie, et cetera? You know, all that kind of, uh, chit chat stuff that goes on in the office that, that doesn't happen very frequently from a work from home scenario, maybe, you know, a little bit before or after a meeting, but it doesn't, it's not as fluid. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can be far more focused and, and productive at home. So the way you combat in the, that in the office is get them there earlier and keep them there later. But at home, you don't have those constraints. Yeah, yeah. And, and that definitely echoes my own experience working in an office. I worked for a few years in a hybrid scenario where I worked at home three to four days a week and went to the office one, one to two days a week. And generally, my days at the office or Wednesday and Thursday. And basically what I would do is try and always plan to get the deep, I'll call I'll say deep work, you know, the focused work um, done on Monday, Tuesday, and Friday. And then on Wednesday, I would try and focus on anything meeting related or any type of uh, collaboration that was needed. Mm -hmm. So if we needed to whiteboard something or mock up an idea, I would try and always slate those things to get done on Wednesday or Thursday because I knew that my productivity was going to get hit on on the other items uh, those days I was at the office. So we've talked a lot about the cons of an office space, I'll say, and then the pros of working from home. But given your experience, what would you say are some of the benefits of working in a central office that uh, one should be aware of, whether an individual team member or an organization, when uh, people start to work from from home. What are the, those things that are better when we're in a uh, all in the same uh, all in the same place and in one office space? Yeah. So um, probably it would just be the the, the human connection part of it, right? I think Kent Beck once said um, that the, the key to his happiness as a programmer was the human connection, um, which, you know, kind of takes you by surprise a little bit. You don't expect him to say something like that. But I think it's true. And I think it, it's probably true to key to happiness in, in most positions, whether you write code or not. And so when you're in the office, you get, you see people, you can see their body language, you, you know, you, you, you can say, hey, let's go to lunch. Um, and, and, and brainstorming sessions at a whiteboard are huge. Uh, I, I love doing that kind of thing where let's, let's throw a bunch of stuff up on the board and, and see what comes out of it. And, and it's interesting though, I hesitate. If you sense a little hesitation in my response to your question, it's because those are pros of being in the office, but there are, um, there are cons to those things being pros, if that makes sense if you are considering embracing the, the remote culture, because those things are so much easier to do in the office in person that you sometimes forget that you're missing out on those types of connections with the other folks on your team. Yeah. So it comes at a cost. So if yeah. a, a, a segment of the team is say doing a whiteboarding session in a boardroom, the people that are remote that aren't available to make it that day, or maybe don't even work in the same area. It isn't convenient or, or possible for them to commute in 
miss out on that. And even if you you point a webcam at a whiteboard, I've done this for not, I don't have a whiteboard in my office, but I've been in scenarios where this has been done. Uh, pointing a webcam at a whiteboard is not the same as actually being there in the room. It's just, there's something different about it. And yeah. And I, I agree. That's that's probably one of the the biggest things about working from home that's easy to miss out on is those brainstorming sessions around around a whiteboard or something like it. Um, but it is important to remember that there are people that are missing out on that. And what we do um, uh, for the company that I work for is a lot of times that real heady whiteboarding stuff gets saved for when we're doing on sites. So. Yeah. When we're doing on-sites together, the whole team is in one place for three, four, five days. Uh, those are the times where we really break the break whiteboards out and do uh, mind mapping and uh, all sorts of whiteboarding and that sort of thing. Uh, when everybody can be there together, hopefully, you know, permitted the whole team can be there for sure. But uh, I agreed that's uh, it's definitely uh, something that is uh, not easy to to replicate you know, in a remote environment. Mm-hmm. So in working on, on the management side of things, it's easy to get your attention pulled a lot of different directions, whether email or uh, chat collaboration, whether it's Slack or some other application or project management software. And we have notifications coming at us a lot, even in a small team size sometimes. What do you personally do to stay focused on various threads at a time and not get uh, what I call notification fatigue, where it's easy to get overwhelmed by all these bits of information coming at us all the time and uh, also distracting. It really hits the, the productivity level on whatever conversation we're trying to engage in at that time, whether it's in a chat software or even a an actual, you know, a call meeting, you know, it's easy to get distracted and pulled into another conversation um, during that as well. What do you personally do to to stay focused and not um, allow that to take up too much of your attention? Yeah, it is. It is definitely a real problem. I mean, I I have days where I feel like I I did a bunch of things, but I never focused on any one of them completely, right? You're doing a little bit of this while you're doing a little bit of that. And uh, what I do to try to, to manage the onslaught of notifications is turn them off. And again, it goes back to that idea that my time belongs to me. And it's up to me to figure out how I'm going to use it most effectively. So I don't get desktop notifications or watch notifications. Um, for for incoming emails um, or uh, incoming you know chats from for Teams or Slack or anything like that, I, I I do the bubble. You know, I like to see how many unread count maybe that there are. But I don't want to be interrupted while I'm doing something with with the fact that an email came in. Now I do use rely heavily on Apple's VIP uh, functionality in Apple Mail, where I can say, hey, look, if it comes directly to me from my boss. I want to know that. I do want to be interrupted by that. If it is like a system alert, one of our systems have gone down or something you know, equally bad, I do want to be interrupted for that. But other than that, I, I turn those things off and, and I try to be deliberate in when I'm going to take some time to go look at 
okay, what emails are there waiting for me? Or what, um, what messages are there in Teams uh, that, that I might want to take a look at and, and try to, to specifically spend time looking at those. But then when I'm not, I don't want to be bothered by them. I, I also use the um, smart mailboxes. Uh, and so for my direct reports, uh, the management you know, team uh, in my organization, that kind of thing, I can get very specific on red counts for them uh, and helps me target when I'm looking at emails. I can target it to uh, you know, folks that I know are dealing with maybe big issues or big projects at the moment and kind of give them a little bit higher priority. Wow, definitely sounds like you've you've worked out a great system there between both the, the mail side of stuff and the chat systems. Um, so what's your practice on mobile? Do you enable uh, notifications on mobile at all? Do you keep work related stuff on your mobile device? What, what do you what do you do there? Yeah, I do have all my work stuff on on my mobile device, but uh, again, notifications mirror what I have on the desktop, and uh, which which is only those very certain things that I select will they pop up and notify me. I can go and look and see how many on red counts I have, and if I mm-hmm. have a few minutes and I want to go read email or uh, see what's going on in, in a Teams channel, I can do that. But I don't get notified. Um, it's really dangerous to have notifications on your phone because. When you walk away from your office, you still have your phone. And if you're spending time with your family, you're at church or whatever it might be, you don't want to get interrupted with um, the fact that you got an email. That probably doesn't matter. It could probably wait, right? So take ownership of your time. Turn those things off. I cannot agree more. Um, I, I'm not as aggressive on the desktop notifications as you are. As you are. Uh, but it definitely gives me something to think about. But on the mobile side of stuff, I'm super strict about what I enable. And actually, my current approach is after a few years of being uh, very conservative about what notifications I allowed from apps in general, not just work-related stuff, but there's you get notifications from all sorts of apps. And it does you know, put a, a maybe not a drain on your time, but it distracts you when you shouldn't be distracted. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my current approach is, and I I switched to this maybe two three years ago. And some of this is subject to uh, possibly subject to changes. Maybe my role changes in the future. But right now, my current workflow list, I don't keep any work related stuff on my mobile device outside of work travel. So whenever I travel for work, I enable email and uh, Slack and all that stuff because when I'm in the airport and maybe in long transit times and stuff, I want to be able to communicate with the team about arrival and all that stuff. Uh, but the rest of the time, I, I try and keep it off. And what I've told the, the team and people that need to directly contact me is, you, you've got my cell number. Like If it's a genuine emergency, f- please even you know, feel free to, to call me. And I do understand that a lot of people out there may not be in that scenario, whether you know, you're someone that has to monitor systems when they go down. Like I, I'm the one that gets notified by the other people that are monitoring those systems. So I'm in a, a little bit of a unique uh, situation of that. But uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it's, most of that stuff is not urgent. It's many times important, but it can wait till later and it doesn't need to distract us when we're having time with our family or, or, or doing, doing other things that are not work-related. And I think in turn, what that allows us to do is when we do return to work, 
It allows our minds to be more rested. We haven't, our minds haven't been, you know, spinning on work things and allow us to actually be more effective when we do get back to the desk and, and get work done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I like your idea of, hey, call me instead because it'll make people think twice about, do I really want to call? You know, that's a much more invasive uh, communication channel than just shooting off a text, you know, kind of a thing uh, or, or, or an email or something like that. So I like that. And I think you also hit on um, a real foundational concept talking about importance over urgency. Uh, and that's true, uh, I think, in all aspects. You know, it's true when you're looking at what work do we prioritize as a team? What, what work do I prioritize for myself? I want to make sure I'm working on the important stuff over the urgent stuff. Because if I'm only focusing on urgency, there will only ever be urgency. So true. So true. And for anyone out there that's never seen um, in, or, or read up on the urgent versus important decision matrix, I think is what it's called. Um, I'm going to link to that down in the show notes. It's a nice little uh, sort of mental model that allows you to walk through what's actually urgent versus important and what needs to be deferred versus dropped in entirely um, and can really help you prioritize what work to work on next. And that, that would be a show topic in itself. So I'll link to that down in the show notes. Um, uh, but Steve, uh, you mentioned a, a couple things now. We, you've mentioned your your prioritization of notifications, how you leverage the tools that are provided with Apple devices to con- control that more. And you've mentioned uh, Things 3 and Bear to track a lot of your priorities and to-dos. Uh, are there any other systems or tools or applications that are essential to your uh, week-to-week workflow? Um, you know, just beyond what is kind of considered um, must-haves anyway, like some sort of whatever your company's instant messaging platform is, whether it's Teams or Slack, um, it's same for for video conference calling. Um, whatever you use, whether it's uh, Office uh, 365 or Google Docs, you know. Beyond that, those are really the big ones for me. Uh, PowerPoint is probably <laughs> a tool that I use more than almost any other um, in my current role, doing a lot of presentations, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the the course of of my workday. But I, I think those are really the big ones. And the you laugh at the PowerPoint one, but I don't use PowerPoint personally. We're we're um, uh, we use the Google side of side of the the internet world at, my, at the company I work at. Um, uh, so, but we use slides a, a ton, and it's a tool that often doesn't get mentioned in team collaboration. But it is hugely beneficial, especially when we're talking about being able to share those easily over. Um, cloud, quote, air quote, cloud uh, places. Uh, we use them a lot for setting uh, basically meeting agendas and helping them guide the, uh, the trajectory and, and the flow of meetings. When we've got you know, huge groups of people in meetings, people will be responsible for uh, their section of the meeting and have a subsequent slide to go with that. And then it, it really creates a, a nice flow um, for things at times. And, and obviously then you also have notes already written up for the basic 
at least structure or outline of what was addressed in the meeting. So yeah, I think that that's something, you know, we kind of laugh at PowerPoint, but it's something that still today can be hugely beneficial to uh, people working. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I'm glad you said that, you know, because I've used it for beyond just like, uh, uh, let's say, uh, an executive leadership presentation or a board presentation. Um, I've used it for uh, mock-ups, you know, in my product management days. Uh, I've used it for uh, virtual whiteboarding sessions, right? Because one of the things that I like to do is throw a bunch of concepts up and then categorize them and move them around and see what emerges. And you can do that uh, through sharing PowerPoint virtually better than pointing a webcam at a whiteboard. So there, yeah, it's a very versatile tool. I, I definitely couldn't get by without it. Yeah, it's it's something that uh, I I never would I, like a few years ago. I I opened a, a slide deck very rarely, um, whether that be Keynote or PowerPoint or Google Slides or whatever. But it's something that you know I find myself using uh, sometimes multiple times a week. You know, depending on the on the you know the week's events. Uh, so hugely hugely beneficial, I think. So. With that, I think that uh, I think that about covers it for today, Steve. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you touched on a lot of really important things on not just distributed teams, but how we can work more effective uh, together as an organization. Um, before we wrap up, uh, where can people find you? Um, well, if you're talking about a social media presence, I really don't have one. I, I have a LinkedIn profile, and that's about it. I, I got rid of Twitter and all that other stuff years ago, and and, and it was really part of uh, minimizing distractions, to be honest. Nice, nice. Uh, I I do keep keep them around, but I do agree that they can be far, far too distracting, um, especially when you're talking about multiple social media networks, you know, people that are active on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and whatever else, TikTok, TikTok that the, as the kids are using these days. Um, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's definitely, uh, I want to talk more on that, but <laughs> I think it's time to wrap up. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me again. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Remotely Effective. Once again, I'm your host, Thomas Lattimore. You can find me on Twitter at T Lattimore and thomaslattimore.com. You can subscribe on iTunes and in Overcast to a Remotely Effective if you have not already. And with that, talk to you all next time. <laughs>